All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He continues, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. A couple of years ago, someone asked a question in a social media group. It was a group of Christians and largely conservative, Bible-believing Christians. If you had one last sermon to preach, what would you use for your text? I believe I've shared this story with you before. As I thought about that question, I reflected on a number of passages. If, if you had one last sermon to preach, what would it be? What would you pick for your text? If you knew that you had run a good race, you'd fought a good fight, and that your time to depart this world was nigh, what would that last sermon be about? And there are several subjects that one might select. You might select the Trinity. You might speak on the divinity of Christ. I believe if I had a final sermon to preach, if I had a final text to use, I believe I would try to expound upon John chapter 6. Now, if I knew it was my last sermon, it might last three hours. And so as we talked about the Father, we would probably talk about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We would probably talk about the Father sending His eternal Son, the eternal Sonship of Christ. Certainly we would consider what Jesus preached in this verse as He speaks to a multitude of people, the fact that all the Father gave Him shall come to Him, and that they'll in no wise be cast out, that He'll lose nothing, but He'll raise it up again at the last day. And as we spoke about that, we'd probably talk about the resurrection, and so the sermon might be three or four hours long, and perhaps that would be the, <laughs> the end of the, the life would be the end of the sermon. But I think if I had a final text to preach, a final sermon to give, it would be John 6:37. No, get nervous. I don't intend for this to be my final sermon. The reason is that in this passage, Jesus preached his own gospel. Jesus preached his own gospel centered around the bedrock truth that salvation is a certain thing. When it comes to the eternal salvation of God's children, there is no what-ifs, there are no potentials to fail, there's no circumstance that can arise in which God's children will not be housed with Him in glory because Jesus made certain that His children are delivered from their sin. Now the backstory to this text, and we read it again, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The backstory behind this is very important. Jesus earlier in John chapter 6 had fed a multitude of people, and we know this is something that Jesus did from time to time. Jesus in John 6, 5 lifted up his eyes, and he saw a great company come unto them, and he asked Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he knew what he would do. And by the way, that statement that John gives us explains a number of questions that Jesus would ask in his ministry when he asked someone, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What is your motivation? Where are you? What's going on? Jesus always knew the answer to those questions, but he asks those questions for the sake of those that are around him. 
In fact, none of the words that Jesus spoke in his life and his personal ministry were wasted words. We oftentimes speak idle words, words that we say in vain, things that we don't necessarily mean. Sometimes we just sit around and talk for the sake of talking. And many times the words that are spoken are idle words. They're useless words. They're words that mean nothing. But never were Jesus' words useless. Never were they idle. Everything he said, everything he did had a purpose. He was a man of purpose in the world. He was the God-man, God incarnate. And at no time did Jesus waste a moment of his life. We're commanded to be Christ-like, and one of the ways that we're Christ-like is by redeeming the time, for the days are evil. We are literally commanded to buy back the time from this wicked world around us. The days are evil. Things that happen in this world are full of folly and wickedness and depravity, and yet we're commanded to redeem those moments, each moment, every moment, to the usage and glory of God. When Jesus lifted up his eyes, he saw a company. He says, how are we going to feed these people? And he said this to prove himself. For he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answers, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them and that everyone may take a little, a lot of bread would not be sufficient for them. There's a great multitude, thousands of people. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, there's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? We all know this story. We're comforted by this story. It's one that we read to our children. It's one that if you grew up going to a Christian preschool, you heard read in the classroom where Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes. He had the men sit down. There was about 5,000 men. You could speculate that if there are 5,000 men, you would have the wives of the 5,000 men if they be married. And if they be married, the children of the 5,000 men and women. So there were potentially thousands upon thousands of people here. And Jesus begins to multiply the loaves and the fishes in such a way to feed every single person until they were full. What an amazing miracle is that. We like to draw a distinction between God's providence and God's miracles. Providence is when God blesses you to get a job and blesses you with clients to work all week and blesses you with a paycheck and with food from the creation around you to be able to buy and eat. That's providence. But this is a miracle. It's where they continue to reach into the basket. And as they continue to reach into the basket, the basket continues to be replenished. The basket's never ran out of food. In fact, as you come to verse 12, he makes them sit down and he feeds them. These disciples of his go around and Distribute this food to the thousands of people. What a length of time this must have taken. When they were filled, he tells the disciples to gather the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. There was food left over after everyone had eaten to capacity. What a feast this must, must have been. When they were filled, he has them gather the fragments that nothing be lost. And he gathered them, gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Now when these men which had seen this saw the miracle that Jesus had done, they said, this is of a truth that that prophet should come into the world. 
This is of a truth. That prophet that should come into the world. That might be a peculiar statement to you. But in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord Jehovah through the pen of Moses tells them that there's coming a day when God shall raise up a prophet like unto himself. And unto him shall the people gather. Those that will not gather and listen to him, it will be required of them. Deuteronomy 18 is a very important portion of God's word. In that chapter, we learn the mark of a true prophet and the mark of a false prophet. If a man prophesies and that which he says shall come to pass comes to pass, you know that that is a man that has spoken that which has come from the Lord. And if that man not be a prophet sent of God, that which he has prophesied will not come to pass. And so you don't have to be afraid of the things that that prophet says because he's a false prophet. Moses tells us in that chapter that God himself is going to raise up a prophet and he's going to be a prophet like unto Moses. What does this mean, like unto Moses? What set Moses apart from the rest of the prophets? Moses, after all, is a prophet. We'd like to think of him as the lawgiver, the one who God sends into Egypt to perform these signs, the turning of his staff into a snake, the turning of the water unto blood, the Passover. He implemented that. He gives that as an ordinance of sacrifice or a feast rather for the nation of Israel and we think of him as that great leader a great judge a great even a ruler over the people of God but Moses was also a prophet he told of things that would come to pass this would be a prophet like unto Moses what sets Moses apart from Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Elijah Moses not only was a prophet but he was one that would usher in redemption how was Israel redeemed they were bought back from the nation of Egypt. They were redeemed through the ministry of Moses. Also like the Lord Jesus, we should say Jesus also like Moses, a prophet after that order. Moses, when he redeemed them, he ushered in a covenant. Jesus, when he redeemed us, ushers in what? The new covenant, a new worship contract under which we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was very much a prophet like unto Moses. Understanding that God would raise up a prophet like unto Moses, people would ask the question, art thou that prophet? We find this language as John the Baptist begins his ministry. There were people that asked him, art thou that prophet? And John the Baptist would say, no, I'm not, I'm not that prophet. What does he mean by that? I was asleep in my chair a few years ago. Um, I was actually at my brother's house in Oxford, Mississippi, and he and another preacher were speaking. And I dozed off, and I woke up long enough to hear them say, What are they talking about? I am not that prophet. What does that mean? And they were both uh, young in the ministry, beginning their pastorates. And I, I spring up out of the chair and immediately begin speaking from John chapter 6 and Deuteronomy 18, and it freaked them out, you know, because I'd been asleep for a good 30 minutes. And they're like, first of all, how did you hear that? Second of all, how did you know that? Well, it's a subject that you study out, that prophet that should come. People begin to ask, they begin to say, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. We find this in the preaching of the ministry in the book of Acts. One of the prophecies of Jesus is that he is that prophet like unto Moses who should come. Jesus perceived in verse 15 that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. And he departed into a mountain alone. 
It's an interesting thought. Jesus was a king. Jesus is a king. But you see, these people didn't want the kingship of Jesus as orchestrated and commanded, ordained by God. They wanted the kingship of Jesus orchestrated and commanded in their own mind. And so if they were to embrace a Jesus who was the Messiah, who came to give them their land back and to exile Rome and Roman rule from their land, they would have been more than happy to submit to his kingship if it were the type of kingship that they wanted. And yet that isn't what they wanted. They didn't want the Jesus of the Bible. They didn't want the Jesus according to the will of God and the ordination of God. They wanted the Jesus of their own defining. We have to watch out for that in Christianity today. We should worship not the Jesus of our own imagination, the Jesus of pop theology, the Jesus of pop culture, the politically correct Jesus. We should worship the Jesus of the scriptures because that is the true Jesus. And any other Jesus that's presented is not the Jesus of the word of God and is therefore not the real Jesus. We want to worship the real Jesus. Jesus perceived that they would make him a king and take him by force. Can you imagine that? It isn't, Lord, we really, really love you. Would you be our king? No, we're going to take you by force. We're going to grab you. We're going to yank you into the holy city. We're going to set you on a throne, and we're going to force you to be our king. And Jesus departs. Now, this begins to set up the context of what Jesus says in verse 37. Later on, the day following, Jesus stands and he begins to teach. And he uses this concept of him feeding them and them desiring him to be their king, desiring for their bellies to be full, and we can't criticize them. If we were starving to death and there were a man who was going about the countryside multiplying loaves and fishes to feed thousands of men, women, and children, would we not be in line? I would be in line. It's easy to criticize them when you have the means to provide for yourself, but if you're starving and you're hungry and there's free food, I would be there in line getting the free food from Jesus. But remember, this isn't just free food. This is Jesus. And so Jesus begins to use what has taken place as an opportunity to speak to them about feasting on something that is far greater than the loaves and the fishes. Now let me just stop right here. And say that Jesus Christ is better than the loaves and the fishes. Jesus Christ is better than physical sustenance. Now, how important is that for us to understand in today's time? What was one of the lessons that we studied together in the book of 1 Timothy? That we should never say that gain is godliness. That we should never desire to be rich because they that will be rich, they that desire to be rich pierce themselves through with many sorrows. They set a snare before them. The love of money is the root of all evil. In today's time, financial wealth, a full belly, is often blended with the Jesus of the Bible in such a way as to say that if you serve Jesus, well, you're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy and you're never going to be poor and you're never going to be hungry. And yet we read of the Apostle Paul that he was in fastings Often. Now, while there is such a thing as fasting where we intentionally avoid food and devote that time to prayer and to the service of God, when Paul said in fastings often, he wasn't talking about volunteering to fast as sometimes they did even in the New Testament age. He's talking about when he had no food to eat and he had learned in whatever state he was in to be content. This passage 
It's extraordinary because it divides between the full tummy, God's providence, or even God's miracles, and to serve the Lord Jesus and to feast on the Lord Jesus in His church. And I would say that to have a heart full of Christ and an empty stomach is infinitely better than to have a full belly and no Christ in this world. Jesus, using this, says in verse 26, which will be something that we come back to, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you see the miracles. Now that's interesting because he would also tell people, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. So how do you rightly divide that? In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, he doesn't mean to say, you, you might remember how he answered that, the only sign that is given is the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. He doesn't say that to say the only sign that is ever given to anyone is the sign of the resurrection. That's the only sign that's given to the wicked and adulterous generation. The works that he did in his father's name, they bear witness of him to his children. So every miracle was assigned to his children. Every miracle was assigned to those that sought him and loved him and cared for him. And as they watched him do that, they were to marvel in amazement at the work of Christ in the world. And I would invite you to marvel in amazement as you read of Christ and as you walk with Christ in this world, seeing his providence and his watch care and his deliverance. Marvel in amazement at your Savior Jesus. God seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth. To put it in another way, and this isn't intended as an insult, maybe it's intended to be partly sarcastic, we do not need to be the frozen chosen. I encourage you to worship Jesus with fervor. Now if we're singing, and we're singing to Jesus, and the Spirit of God begins to move in you, because we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit through singing. It's why the song service is so important. If God moves in you and you feel like raising your hands to God and saying, praise God, then by all means, raise your hands and praise God. So we don't do that. We're primitive Baptists. Then primitive Baptists need to do that. There are times primitive Baptists need to repent. Sometimes we need to repent of the frozen chosenness. Amen? If God moves you to shout amen at the pronouncing of his word, then by all means shout amen. Now the first time you do it, it may scare me to death, but I promise you I'll get used to it. I can get used to it. I, we can get used to exclaiming his worship, and we don't want to make a show of it. But how sweet it is to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word, to feel his his presence, his experience, to experience him. These miracles are given that they might rejoice and have more fervor in their service to him. But he tells them, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you're not seeking me because you believe. You're not seeking me because you love me. You're simply seeking me because you received something that you needed in a physical sense. Never let it be said that we only seek Jesus for a full belly. Now, 
who would do that? I recently was shared part of a transcript by a, a speaker in my brother's hometown. And I don't, I don't say this to be mean, but it is what it is. And the comment that the man made in the pulpit was, you know, we have the gospel of salvation and that's just not enough. Did everybody just kind of, I think the pews just scooted back six inches in this building because everyone jumps back and the building may have just moved on the foundation. And the point was we need something from Jesus. That's what we really need, that we don't just need the gospel of salvation. Paul just needed the gospel of salvation. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. All we need is the gospel. We need the gospel of salvation. That's what we need. We need the Jesus of the gospel of salvation. That's all we need. If we seek him and we say the gospel's not enough, my belly needs to be filled, we're literally doing what the people did in John chapter 6. Ironically enough, in the same message, the man began to criticize the doctrines of grace. You think the word of God isn't relevant for today? Oh, it's relevant. Literally unfolding before eyes. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to exhort them, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Now the statement right there, sealed, that's the important part of this verse for us today. And this will be something that we consider in just a moment together as we come back to John 6.37, when we get back to John 6.37, and we consider this glorious promise. Him hath the Father sealed. Okay, to seal something is to give an insignia, a sign, and generally, when a covenant was made in that day, many times would the covenant be sealed to make it authentic and official. Him has the Father sealed. In fact, the word covenant is defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as a formal agreement, a promise, or contract under seal. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want you to see this word. Him hath the Father sealed. Now, what Jesus is saying in verse 27 is that Christ gives us something that endures all the way to eternity. Now, he's not telling you that you need to labor to go to heaven. We understand that salvation is by grace. But what you are feasting on this morning will last all the way into the next life because its source is from the next life. Do you understand that? What we're engaging in this morning springs from a source other than this world. We are feasting on the Lord Jesus. Now, might I say, God gives us eternal life and it enables us to feast on him and it lasts under the next world. But every time that we pick up this word and we pray and we hear the gospel and we feast on Christ, we're enjoying something that comes from the next world, from God's eternal throne. We are feasting on something that is even eternal as we participate in the worship of the Lord Jesus. They begin to question and interact and you have statements like, well, what do we need to do to... Work the works of God. And he says, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom they have sent. And they begin to say, well, what sign do you show us then that thou 
that, that we may believe, uh, duh, what just happened the day before? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, they continue to ask. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, feed us again and we'll believe you. And had he fed them again, you know what they would have said the next day? Feed us again and we'll believe you. Feed us again and we'll believe you. Because they were not there because of Christ. They were there because of food. An irony, I forgot to eat breakfast this morning. And my stomach is growling. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. You know that as they wandered in the wilderness because of their sin and because of their unbelief, every morning except for the Sabbath when they woke up, there would be this sweet honey-flavored bread, the angel's food, manna, covering the ground. Could you imagine waking up and walking outside and it snows, but the snow is food? how he sustained them and he sent them quails to eat he caused water to gush forth from a rock to give them to drink all the while they murmured at him and the only reason they were wandering the wilderness is because of their unbelief go take google maps and see how long it takes you to walk from sinai peninsula to jerusalem it's not a long walk but six days Forty years they wandered because when they got there, they rejected the promise of God. But even in that, God was faithful to feed them and care for them and give them military victories. And when the last of the unbelieving generation had passed away, he blesses the next generation to go in and to take Canaan's land with a few notable exceptions such as Caleb and Joshua who always believed the promise of God. Now, we're not talking about believing in God. We're talking about believing God. They didn't believe the promises of God, and so they didn't experience the promises of God. Caleb and Joshua did. Caleb and Joshua went in. Jesus compares himself to the manna. I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread. While our fathers did eat in the desert, he gave them bread from heaven. Give us the bread that Moses gave us. Wait a minute. Moses didn't give you that bread. My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Metaphorically, in a metaphor, when we participate in Jesus, in any sense, in any sense, we've experienced the bread of life. Now, you might have experienced Jesus in salvation, but how much... Better is it to experience that bread every day. So you can take this point and teach salvation. You can take this point and build on it to reading the Word of God every single day of your life. Jesus is the bread of life. They said, well, Lord, give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you, that ye also have seen me and believe not. Now, any time that Jesus speaks to a mixed multitude, we have to remind ourselves that there before him are different types of people. The word ye here is plural, and it has reference to a great number of people that stood before Jesus. They simply did not believe in him. 
Why did they not believe in him? Well, look at verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. They didn't believe because they weren't drawn. What is the drawing? The drawing is the new birth. When we are taken from death and sin and placed in life in Christ. As Jesus begins to say this, you see me, you believe not. In verse 37, he gives the flip side of that coin. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. As we think about coming to Christ here, and the, the main point of today isn't to consider what it means to be drawn into him, though that is something that we'll, we will consider. The main point we're going to come to in just a minute. So, so far this preface has been 36 minutes. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. What does it mean to come to Christ? It means in this context that you are literally drawn from death in sin to life in Jesus Christ. How do you know that? Because of verse 45. No man can come to me except drawn. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and has learned of the Father cometh unto me. Understand that at the moment of your new birth, you went from death and sin to life in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. At the new birth, the laws of God are written on your hearts. At the new birth, you are taught of God. As it is written, they shall be all taught of God, all whom... We'll get to that in a moment. They shall all know Him from the least to the greatest. Hebrews chapter 8. At the new birth, in that sense, we come to Him. The reason that these people did not believe, even though they followed Him for the food, is because they had not been, many of them, born again. They were yet undrawn. Why? This is our point. 38-minute preface. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Why? Why? All that God the Father gave the Son shall come to him. And we've defined that as to be born again, being taught of God because of this. Notice they will be in no wise cast out. This teaches preservation. We read in verse 39 that he'll lose none of them, eternal security. But he should raise it up again at the last day. And to raised up again means that you were once raised up the first time. When were you raised up the first time in the new birth? 
spiritual resurrection, John 5, 25. How do you know that you're one of these people who have been taught of him? Well, this is the will of him that sent me, everyone, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You know that you've passed from death unto life when you receive the word, as John 5, 24 said. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. If you hear his word, you will not be condemned because you have passed from death unto life. Why will all that the Father give the Son, or all that the Father has given to the Son, why will they all come to him in this context? Think about Hebrews 8, from the what to the what? From the least to the greatest. I believe I'm looking at some of the greatest this morning. Some of the greatest people who love Jesus and are here on a Sunday morning. But think about the least. Raging in this country right now is a battle over the sanctity of life. Did you know that death at a young age such as infancy or before birth can't take you from your Savior Jesus? Because the least of them, the least of them, will be drawn into him and shall in no wise be cast out. What a God we serve. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Why? Here's the answer. This is the question. Here's the answer. Because God, before the world began, engaged in, entered into, a covenant with himself to save his people from their sins. Back up to verse 27. For him hath God the Father, what? Sealed. That's covenantal language. As we've already defined covenant, it's a formal agreement, a promise, or a contract under seal. The Bible uses the word covenant a lot. Uses it often in There are many covenants that are spoken of in the Word of God. Times when God would engage in contract with people, with nations. The old covenant we're very familiar with, where God engages in covenant with the nation of Israel. He gives them land. He gives them a constitution, a law. And through them would the Messiah come into the world. We're familiar with the new covenant this new covenant, he taketh away the old that he may, the first that he may establish the second. As we study today, the concept that we're sharing with you is of the everlasting covenant. And I want to emphasize that everlasting nature of this covenant. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 23. Why will all the Father gave him come to him and never be cast out, but be raised up again at the last day? Why, in other words, is there security in Christ? David reflects on this, and as you read 2 Samuel 23, the first verse of this chapter says, Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, and he goes on to speak about how God was with him, 
and advice to those that rule over men. Verse 5, although my house be not so with God. What a statement is that? David's house by the end of his life was a mess. What a mess was David's house. Think about this for just a moment. David, the man after God's own heart, he spends his younger life tending to his father's sheep. Then he goes and he slays Goliath and he's exalted by God. David begins to be praised by the people. Saul killed thousands. David is ten thousands. Saul becomes jealous, begins to try to kill David, throws javelins at him as David plays the harp. He's a professional musician and as a professional musician, I don't know that I've ever played and someone threw a javelin at me. So, you know, David's playing the harp and here comes the javelin. Sticks in the wall. David has to run out. Was it something I said, you know? So, David ends up king over Israel. David is a triumphing king and yet David falls into temptation and sin with Bathsheba. After that, the sword never departed from David's house. You have, I believe, Amnon, which took advantage of his own sister, and Absalom slew him, and then Absalom is fleeing and gets caught in a tree by the head, and Joab kills him. David's life from that point on was a mess. And so what does he say as he begins reflecting on God's interaction with him? Although my house be not so with God. My house is a mess, David says. Has your life ever been a mess? Read the next part. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. There are hours of sermons in that passage. This is an everlasting covenant. It will not end. It is ordered in all things, meaning that God orchestrated, ordained, micromanaged it from the beginning to the end. And it is what? Uncertain? No. Sure. To be sure means that it is on, as we would say, a firm foundation. It is certain. It is unmovable. It is unshakable. It is ordered in all things by God Himself and sure this covenant that God has made, this covenant is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, over and over in the book of Hebrews, do we have references to God's covenant with us. But as we think about it, what I want to do with this passage and maybe a few other places and, and bring this to a Close. All the Father gave him shall come to him because God acted in covenant with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A covenant ordered in all things and sure even before the world began. And God's covenant will not be broken. Now we are covenant breakers. We are natural born covenant breakers. We break covenants. It doesn't matter who we are. We, we've all gone back on something that we promised to do. It's just in the nature of being a man. Praise God, this covenant that God made is not between us and Him, but is between Him and Him and Him. What do I mean by that? 
In the specifics of this covenant, God the Father chose to save people. The Father chose. In the specifics of this covenant before the foundation of the world, the Son agreed to redeem those that the Father had chosen. And you see this in his preaching often. The Father chose. The Son agrees to redeem. The Spirit agrees to regenerate and does regenerate as a working out of this covenant here in time. We use him number 554 as our opening number just a moment ago, and you, you saw all of that in this hymn. Long ere the sun began his days, or moon shot forth her silver rays, salvation's scheme was fixed, twas done, in covenant by the three in one. Not that salvation was done. Salvation was done on the cross, legally and vitally, by the work of the Holy Spirit in every individual child of God's life at the appointed time. But the scheme was fixed. The Father spake, the Son replied, the Spirit with them both complied. Grace moved the cause for saving man, and wisdom drew the noble plan. What high displays of sovereign grace, what love to save a ruined race, my soul adore his lovely name, by whom thy free salvation came. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit engage in covenant, the everlasting covenant, on behalf of the people of God, before the world was even created to save them from their sins. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How fitting is that, that in the salvation of men, and this is so overlooked in today's religion, in today's Christian thought, people think about Jesus having a role in salvation, but there are two other persons of the Godhead who played a role in our deliverance. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit regenerates. Now with that knowledge and that understanding, you know how many passages of Scripture we could turn to to demonstrate for us the role of the three-in-one in saving God's people? The book of Hebrews 10, I mentioned this just a moment ago. The writer here, I believe to be Paul, says that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. In this entire book, he's speaking about the superior, superiority of Christ, the superiority of the covenant, the superiority of the salvation of Christ, the priesthood of Christ, the offering of Christ, the person of Christ, the condescension of Christ. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Jesus was a priest that didn't offer a bull or a goat, but he offered his own body. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. That is God the Father. The Son came into the world to do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father in the covenant? That His Son would be the ransom for sin to save the people that He had chosen. And when He said, Sacrificed in burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then He said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. That's the work of the Son. You have Father and Son. What about Spirit? Find the Spirit in verse 15. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also was a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their heart and into their mind will I write them. You had the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So many places in Scripture present the same exact pattern to us of salvation through Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Have you ever wondered, other than simply being baptized in the name of God, why we would be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost? The gospel message of salvation is contained therein. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, regenerated by the Holy Ghost. Romans chapter 9, verses or 8, chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, For whom he did foreknow, God knew you beforehand. He also did predestinate. That's not a scary word. It's not an excluding word. It's, it's an including word. He set your destiny before the world began in that covenant that after this world you would be conformed to the image of his Son without blame and holy before him, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, God the Father, whom he also called, who called you? God the Spirit. And whom he called them, he also justified. Who justified you? God the Son. Whom he justified them, he also glorified. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 gives us this same exact pattern. According as he has chosen us in him, verse 4, before the foundation of the world, God set you aside before the world began, that you should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's the work of the Father. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the richness of his grace. That's the work of the Son. Verse 1 of chapter 2, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. That's the work of the Spirit. We have salvation through Father, Son, and Spirit, the three-in-one God who engaged in covenant in himself, with himself, between himself, before the foundation of this world. I mentioned being a little more enthusiastic in worship. This would be a great time to say amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, I tried to speak on this passage yesterday out at Old Ebenezer Church in Shelby County. Be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, or me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. God who hath saved us, that's the work of Christ, and called us with a holy calling, that's the work of the Spirit, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. By whom? By the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If you follow the preaching of Jesus, especially in the book of John, John chapter 6, we already quoted this, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Why? Because I'm the seal of the covenant, because I will have it to be so, and they shall never be cast out. The book of John chapter 10 my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me, which is to say gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. 
John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What is the point in our message today, other than simply to bask in the grace of God? Salvation for the people of God is a certain thing. Yesterday I heard a great sermon by Elder David Wise about the new birth, and his point was that we have three examples of someone being born again in the New Testament. You have John the Baptist born again in his mother's womb. You have Saul of Tarsus born again in the prime of his life in the height of human arrogance and rebellion against God on the road to Damascus going to persecute Christians. And then you had the thief on the cross born again at the moment of his death being executed for crime. What's the point we can get from those three lessons as Elder Wise shared with us? God will save his people. Whether in infancy, whether in the prime of their life, or on their deathbed being executed for things that they are rightfully condemned for. The Lord, as the angel said, in fact, we'll conclude our message today with Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. The angel comes to Joseph. He says, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins.